This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. The world has gone haywire. A relatively mild virus has turned our entire world upside down. We're seeing record unemployment, disruptions to food supply, people in bread lines visiting food banks and soup kitchens. We've seen fear and panic. We've also seen a rise in authoritarianism, and we've seen the loss of freedoms. We've seen how quickly freedom of religion can evaporate. It shows you how fragile the world as we know it really is. And in many ways, it seems life will be permanently altered because of this crisis. In many ways, conditions cannot return to exactly the way they have been. But before you go thinking that we're experiencing the end of the world, I want to remind you of something Jesus Christ said, something shocking, something we can't afford to forget. When he was asked about conditions at the end of the world, Jesus prophesied that the nations would experience great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. We want to believe that history's worst is behind us. And truly, humanity's past is painfully full of poverty and disease and starvation, torment, oppression, massacre, genocide, war. But Christ's words signal that we are yet to experience worse tribulation than any ever suffered. He said further that except those days should be shortened, every human being would die. Look around at what's happening today, and you have to think twice about what Christ said. And that prophecy should have far greater force in our minds today than for his disciples at the time. After all, we know about Hitler and Stalin, about the death camps and gulags. We know about atomic bombs and nuclear warfare. We're living in a world gripped by despair and fear caused by pandemic and panic among peoples and their governments. We've seen a lot of startling and troubling developments, but compared to the suffering prophesied by Jesus Christ, it's actually quite mild. This is hardly the worst suffering in human history. And you put what Christ said together with several other prophecies throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And that fact becomes even more plain. According to prophecy, ahead of us lie race war, economic besiegement, financial collapse, starvation, far deadlier pandemics, nuclear war, foreign invasion, national captivity, literally billions of people dying. Now, in the current crisis, there is a striking trend. 
many people are thinking about God. Polls show that a good percentage of people believe we're seeing signs of God's coming judgment and that this is a wake-up call for us to turn back to faith in God. A lot of people believe these are signs that we're in the last days. Polls indicate an increase in people who are praying. These things are good. God does intend adversity like what we're experiencing to provoke that kind of thinking. But at the same time, sadly, many people are responding in the opposite way. They're not using confinement for reflection or religious devotion or family bonding. They're not thinking about those things. They're binging on television and movies and video games and pornography and marijuana use. So if God is going to use this crisis as a wake-up call, then clearly the calamities are going to have to intensify before they really jolt a whole lot of people. And this points to the reason for Christ's prophetic warning. And it illuminates the way to avoid the suffering to come. It's stunning to realize that the Great Tribulation will be harsher than anything in all of history. When you consider the industrial scale of suffering in the 20th century. World War I was called the war to end war because it was so massive, so murderous, so horrific, people couldn't even fathom going to war again. But before that war was even over, something happened that would perpetuate the nightmares of the 20th century. That was the Russian Revolution. Once in power, the Bolsheviks began mass arrests and imprisonment. Captives included millions of peaceful, innocent citizens who were perversely considered enemies of the cause. And then World War II came, and it eclipsed the horrors of World War I tenfold. It was terrible tribulation such as the world had never seen. Submarine warfare, V-2 rockets, aircraft carriers, concentration camps, atomic bombs. And conditions in Russia had deteriorated dramatically under Joseph Stalin, one of history's greatest mass murderers. Even while hurling men by the millions into fighting the Germans, he continued the imprisonments and purges of millions more of his own people. And that tribulation ground on long after the war ended. One captain in the Soviet army during World War II was a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In 1945, he wrote a private letter criticizing the way Stalin was conducting the war. And for this crime, he was sentenced to eight years in a labor camp. During and after his internment, he collected material for what ended up becoming the Gulag Archipelago. It's a series of books describing life in Soviet captivity. This meticulous account powerfully describes tribulation and captivity. It portrays shattered freedoms, rampant injustices, brutal arrests, 
torturous interrogations, horrifying camp conditions, and countless grotesque manifestations of human nature among both officers and prisoners, it makes the reality of the coming Great Tribulation achingly real. Captives of the Gulag numbered in the millions. Soviet officials extracted as much work from them as they possibly could, while providing as little care as possible. So the camps were devastatingly filthy and diseased. Captives were starved or literally worked to death. Solzhenitsyn wrote this, The life of the natives consists of work, 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 of starvation, cold, and cunning. He wrote how the prisoners, because they weren't given clothing, were barefoot, they were nearly naked, and this in the Russian wasteland, the tundra that was, he said, eternally covered with snow and the blizzards eternally raged over it. At times on a given worksite, hundreds of laborers simply froze to death. The utter disregard for human life led to unthinkable atrocities. Despite them requiring prisoners to labor in the cold for 10 to 12 hours a day or more, officials fed them next to nothing. Solzhenitsyn wrote, they poured water into a pot, and the best one might expect was that they would drop unscrubbed small potatoes into it. And wherever there was a water shortage, only one bowl of gruel was cooked a day. And they also gave out a ration of two cups of turbid salty water, Everything any good was always and without fail stolen for the chiefs, for the trustees, and for the thieves. In such conditions, only one thing dominates the mind. Solzhenitsyn wrote, Hunger, which forces an honest person to reach out and steal. When the belly rumbles, conscience flees. Hunger, which compels the most unselfish person to look with envy into someone else's bowl and to try painfully to estimate what weight of ration his neighbor is receiving. Hunger, which darkens the brain and refuses to allow it to be distracted by anything else at all or to think about anything else at all or to speak about anything else at all except food food and food hunger from which it is impossible to escape even in dreams dreams are about food and insomnia is over food and soon just insomnia sickness and disease were rampant yet Solzhenitsyn wrote acerbically there was no doctor's aid not even an orderly and as a result, there were no sick. And anyone who pretended to be sick was taken out to the wood in his comrades' arms, and they also took a board and rope along so they could drag the corpse back the more easily. The work projects, clearing forests, breaking rocks, mining ore, 
building railroads and canals. These projects staggered forward at incalculable human cost. Solzhenitsyn wrote that the system's principal form of waste was the last leggers. Everything built by the archipelago had been squeezed out of the muscles of the last leggers before they became last leggers. And those who survived must take upon themselves the disgrace of their own preserved lives. Philosophers, psychologists, medical men, and writers could have observed in our camps as nowhere else, in detail and on large scale, the special process of the narrowing of the intellectual and spiritual horizons of a human being, the reduction of the human being to an animal, and the process of dying alive. That happened in the 20th century. Jesus Christ says the tribulation to come will be worse. God doesn't want to put anyone through that if he doesn't have to. The great tribulation that Christ prophesied will not arrive without warning. He personally warned about it 2,000 years ago. Centuries before that, God warned through Moses, Hosea, Amos, and other prophets. He warned through Ezekiel after he and his people had suffered nation-destroying tribulation, conquest, and enslavement. Ezekiel, a captive himself, prophesied that in the future, Israel's descendants would again suffer tribulation on an epic scale. And these descendants make up modern nations that include most prominently America and Britain. Ezekiel 5 prophesies that a third of these nations' populations will die in violence within cities. Another third will die in nuclear attacks. And the surviving third will be enslaved, just like Ezekiel was. Now, the numbers, more than 100 million in each of these waves that Ezekiel prophesied of, these numbers defy imagination. Why would God allow and cause, even cause, that kind of suffering? Well, it's not just to punish. God is actually trying to correct. God is trying to reach people. He's trying to help them repent. He's a father trying to reach his sons. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And it says in verse 11 there in Hebrews 12, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous, Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. When someone responds positively to that correction, it brings beautiful results. God does correct, but he does it as gently as he possibly can. It's like he has a set of hammers, and if we fail to heed the gentler correction... We force him to use bigger hammers and harder blows to dissuade us from choosing the way that leads to death. The Great Tribulation is the biggest hammer of all. 
But even that is a corrective tool. It's going to succeed in driving thousands of his own wayward, spirit-begotten saints back to him. Revelation 7 verse 9 says it's also going to bring a great multitude which no man could number into his family. And ultimately, it's going to do a lot to prepare the whole world to come to know God. The Gulag Archipelago shows how the tribulation will actually succeed as a tool of correction. It's horrible to contemplate, but the tribulation is actually an expression of God's love. The majority, the great majority who entered the Soviet gulags were broken by those. Yet Solzhenitsyn documented how there were some few, even though they were crushed in body, who actually grew stronger in mind and spirit. When someone is forcibly plucked from his life and thrust into a world where survival is the only goal, in a sense, life becomes exceedingly simple. One prisoner described the slow hours of internment, the quiet, the time to think. He said this, Here all the trivia and fuss have decreased. I've experienced a turning point. Here you hearken to that voice deep inside you, which amid the surfeit and vanity used to be stifled by the roar from outside. Just think about the fact that right now, even in the middle of all of this global crisis, people remain distracted and self-absorbed. So what is God to do? Rather than give us up to sinful self-destruction, he has to find a way to cut through all that noise. If he's going to reach people, if he's going to teach people, he has to find a way. Solzhenitsyn quoted a proverb that says, Poverty and prison give wisdom. And another proverb that says, Freedom spoils and a lack of freedom teaches Solzhenitsyn wrote this, torn from the hustle bustle of everyday life in so absolute a degree that even counting the passing minutes puts him intimately in touch with the universe. The lonely prisoner has to have been purged of every imperfection, of everything that has stirred and troubled him in his former life, that has prevented his muddied waters from settling into transparency. How much does the tumult in your life muddy the waters of your mind and stop you from really contemplating what is truly important? In captivity, there's so much time and so much motive to think deeply and examine yourself differently. Solzhenitsyn wrote, Here is a rewarding and inexhaustible direction for your thoughts. Reconsider all your previous life. Remember everything you did that was bad and shameful and take thought. Can't you possibly correct it now? Yes, you've been imprisoned for nothing. You have nothing to repent of before the state and its laws, but before your own conscience, but in relation to other individuals. If you were enslaved this way, would you look back with regret 
on how you lived? Would you regret the choices you made? There was another captive named Boris Kornfeld who said this, I have become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this life on earth which is undeserved. Superficially, it can have nothing to do with what we're guilty of in actual fact. But if you go over your life with a fine-tooth comb and ponder it deeply, you will always be able to hunt down that transgression of yours for which you have now received this blow. Solzhenitsyn recognized that you may argue this point when you see children and other innocent people brutally punished But he wrote this, there was something in Kornfeld's last words that touched a sensitive chord and that I accept quite completely for myself and many will accept the same for themselves. This man had been a hardened Russian officer, yet there in the gulag as he contemplated his life, he thought this, There is nothing that so aids and assists the awakening of omniscience within us as insistent thoughts about one's own transgressions, errors, mistakes. He thought this as he recalled his own past. How many unused opportunities there were. When will we now make up for it? If I only manage to survive... Oh, how differently, how wisely I am going to live. The day of our future release, it shines like the rising sun. Zechariah 13 and verse 8 describes the same tribulation that Ezekiel 5 prophesies. Only one third will yet live. And what will God do with these survivors Verse 9 says, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. That's quite a prophecy. This cruel captivity is going to accomplish God's purpose by refining these victims. God will work with them and help them to ascend in character. Isaiah 48, verse 10, God says, Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Solzhenitsyn movingly described the refining that captivity can bring into our lives. He wrote, Your soul, which formerly was dry, now ripens from suffering. And even if you haven't come to love your neighbors in the Christian sense, you are at least learning to love those close to you. It is particularly in slavery that for the first time we have learned to recognize genuine friendship. There are some rare individuals who are immersed in that environment of unspeakable barbarity, who actually gain moral clarity. Solzhenitsyn continued, Once upon a time, you were sharply intolerant. You were constantly in a rush, and you were constantly short of time. And now you have time with interest. 
you are surfeited with it, with its months and its years behind you and ahead of you. And a beneficial calming fluid pours through your blood vessels. Patience. You are ascending. Formerly, you never forgave anyone. You judged people without mercy. And you praised people with equal lack of moderation. And now an understanding mildness has become the basis of your uncategorical judgments. You've come to realize your own weakness. And you can therefore understand the weakness of others. And be astonished at another's strength. The humiliation of captivity can lead to a humility of spirit. When pomp and vanity are exposed as being false and worthless, that can actually create space for something more pure. The mind can awaken to all that it once took for granted. The captive clutches for meaning and for hope and humanity and for God. Solzhenitsyn writes how gratefully his fingers reach out to feel and crumble the lumps of earth in the vegetable garden, but alas, it is all asphalt. How his head rises of itself toward the eternal heavens, but alas, this is forbidden. And how much touching attention the little bird on the window still arouses in him, but alas, there is that muzzle there and the hinged ventilation pane is locked. It's so easy, achingly easy to neglect what is truly important. But soon many millions of people will have their illusions exposed and everything they cherished stripped away from them. Untold millions of people will become even more depraved and animalistic. But in the midst of that darkness, something truly beautiful will occur. There will be an innumerable host who will accept that chastening and scourging, and they'll take hold of humility. They'll embrace that correction, and they'll be refined like molten gold. Of all the things people will be deprived of in the tribulation, God's truth will be one. God prophesies of a famine of the word in Amos 8 and verse 11. Today, that truth is abundant. People can readily access it through the Trumpet Magazine, the Key of David television program, radio programs, podcasts, many publications. But soon that truth will be gone. A famine of the word. Now, this is why we're so urgent today to publicize God's warning message while we can. Those future captives need this message. They need the He Was Right booklet explaining Mr. Armstrong's prophecies. They need the trumpet. They need Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry's booklets on Lamentations and the Song of Songs. These are special messages that God is sending to his rebellious spiritual sons. Those are messages that they desperately need. And we say, like Jesus Christ did in John 9 and verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. 
the founding book of the Trumpets publisher, the Philadelphia Church of God, is Malachi's message. In that book, Mr. Fleury shows that the last era of God's church before Christ's return, called the Laodicean era, that began just after the leader of God's church, Herbert W. Armstrong, died in January of 1986. Now read Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, and you can read Christ's message of correction to this rebellious church era. Since 1986, the true church of God has splintered and re-splintered. Yet God has been knocking on the Laodiceans' door for 30 years through the Philadelphia Church of God. He's still knocking. He's still beseeching them to open the door to him. Those who fail to heed are going to be thrust into the great tribulation. And scripture prophesies that in that Holocaust, they'll have to repent or lose their eternal lives. And to prove their hearts, God will actually give them an important work to do in their captivity. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll look at several prophecies that show the extraordinary results God will accomplish in the tribulation and how this terrible trial is actually a tremendous demonstration of God's mercy and love. We'll be right back. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a lot about the importance of memory in captivity. He wrote, own nothing, possess nothing. Own only what you can always carry with you. No languages, no countries, no people. Let your memory be your travel bag. Use your memory. Use your memory. It is those bitter seeds alone which might sprout and grow someday. Solzhenitsyn used his own memory to extraordinary effect. He composed hundreds of lines of poetry in his mind, endlessly rehearsing and refining them without committing them to paper. He wrote, This was very rewarding in that it helped me not to notice what was being done with my body. Memory was the only hidey hole in which you could keep what you had written and carry it through all the searches and journeys under escort. No longer burdened with frivolous and superfluous knowledge, a prisoner's memory is astonishingly capacious and can expand indefinitely. We have too little faith in memory. Amid the tribulation, God's people in captivity will search their memories, and God will help them remember. They'll recall remnants of God's truth. They'll recollect their time in God's church. They'll think about Psalm 137. Verse 1 of that psalm says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Like those who composed that psalm, they will be exiles in captivity, mourning, 
remembering their history. Verse 3 says, For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. The words to Psalm 137 are part of a hymn that God's people have sung for years, composed by Dwight Armstrong and included in the Bible hymnal. Those of God's people in captivity will actually remember that psalm by remembering this hymn. And verses 8 and 9 show that they will actually testify to their captors. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards you as you have served us. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. These are the chilling words of these Laodiceans in captivity. They will deliver God's warning to their guards and officers, a warning of the fate that awaits them. They'll be doing a real work for God, even in those horrifying conditions. The Bible says, that God's people who have finally repented and are doing this warning work will be martyred for it. Yet because they repented, they will have qualified to receive eternal life. Solzhenitsyn described astronomer Nikolai Kozirev, a fellow prisoner who, quote, saved himself by thinking of the eternal and infinite, of the order of the universe and of its supreme spirit, of the stars, of their internal state, and what time and the passing of time really are. Contemplating God enabled Nikolai Kozirev to survive, despite being confined for a year with a man who had literally gone insane. Nikolai thought and thought and thought until he reached the limits of his own knowledge, and he cried out, Please, God, I've done everything I could. Please help me. Please help me continue. Just half an hour later, the guards came, and handed Nikolai a book, a course in astrophysics. Where had it come from, Solzhenitsyn wrote. The prison library generally was full of only communist propaganda books. Aware of the brief duration of the coincidence, Kozirev threw himself on the book and began to memorize everything he needed immediately and everything he might need later on. He had a hunger for knowledge, 
imagine the hunger for true knowledge people will possess during the famine of the word. They will hunger for meaning and for hope. If only we could appreciate these things now while they're abundant. The book exchange at this prison would swap the books out every 10 days. But just two days after Nikolai received this book on astrophysics, the prison chief made an unscheduled inspection. His eagle eye noticed immediately. But you are an astronomer? Yes. Take this book away from him. But its mystical arrival had opened the way for further work, which Nikolai then continued in the camp in Norilsk. How can you explain something like that? Can that be explained any way other than the fact that the omnipotent, omniscient God was watching and listening and working in the life of an unconverted prisoner in a Soviet gulag? How closely attentive will God be in the lives of the captives and exiles of the Great Tribulation? He will be meticulously orchestrating circumstances for the Laodiceans, for the innumerable multitude that never knew God until the tribulation struck, for the nations of Israel, and in fact, really for all humanity. Of those experiencing this severest of punishments, God says in Zechariah 10 and verse 9, And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. As this ordeal leads them to repent, God will actually use them to reach still others. In his booklet on Zechariah, Mr. Fleury wrote, God will sow the Laodiceans in far countries during the tribulation. Half of them will turn again to God, realizing what they almost lost. But what makes this verse so very inspiring is the fact that God is in control of the situation. He says, I will sow them. Why does a farmer sow seed? So he can have a harvest. God will actually sow them in foreign countries so they can teach the Gentiles. Even as the Gentiles threaten to kill them, they will say, go ahead, but I'm telling you what's coming. God's message will be taught all over the world by the Laodiceans. Isn't that amazing? God sows them so he can reap a harvest. Today, these are people who are rebelling against God, and yet he's preparing to correct them and save them from spiritual death. And far beyond that, he's preparing to use them to save still more people, even their own captors. God is always so far ahead of us. In Ezekiel 12, God instructed Ezekiel to prophesy about the captivity that his rebellious people would be going into. Verses 14 to 15 say, And I will scatter toward every wind all that are about to help him and all his bands, 
and I will draw out the sword after them, and they shall know that I am the Eternal when I shall scatter them among the nations and dispense them in the countries. These people are going into captivity, and God says, I will scatter them. I will disperse them. He's doing it, and he's not doing it haphazardly. Verse 16, but I will leave a few men of them from the sword and from the famine and from the pestilence. God will make sure that some are not killed in those other tragedies. They will be taken alive. And why is that? Verse 16 of Ezekiel 12 says that they may declare all their abominations among the heathen whither they come, and they shall know that I am the eternal. Mr. Fleury wrote about this in the trumpet of August 1992. The Laodiceans are going to declare their abominations to their captors. They will repent of rejecting what God taught through Mr. Armstrong and the PCG. They will tell the Gentiles that the doctrines and prophecies they rejected were actually inspired by God. They are going to repent and do a work for God, and God will actually orchestrate events so their repentance actually brings salvation to some of those Gentiles. They shall know I am the Lord, it says. Not just those repentant Laodiceans, but some Gentiles as well. It's a very sobering picture, but so deeply inspiring. Solzhenitsyn described an array of tools and tortures Soviet interrogators used to break captives and extract confessions. They interrogated one old woman repeatedly, but she refused to tell them anything. Solzhenitsyn wrote, at first the interrogators took turns, and then they went after her in groups. They shook their fists in the little old woman's face, and she replied, there is nothing you can do with me even if you cut me into pieces. After all, you are afraid of your bosses, and you are afraid of each other, and you are even afraid of killing me. But I am not afraid of anything. I would be glad to be judged by God right this minute. Solzhenitsyn knew of several individuals like this old woman, people who would rather choose death then cooperate or sign anything denouncing anyone. The book, The Song of Songs in the Bible, describes many factors involved in the Laodiceans' captivity. And it describes this Laodicean woman, the Church of God, suffering in the tribulation and turning to God. Chapter 8 and verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which has a most vehement flame. Gerald Flurry wrote this in his booklet, on the Song of Songs. There is a time coming when this repentant bride of Christ will become a courageous witness for her husband in the face of death 
amid the nightmares of the tribulation. She will look her persecutors squarely in the face and say, love is strong as death. I can love God and I can die for him because I love him so much. Verse 7 says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned. What a breathtaking scripture, Mr. Flurry wrote. If we are loyal to God, nothing can destroy true love. Nothing, not even death. There's a lot of tragedy in God's church today. But despite all of it, God is full of hope that his precious spirit-begotten sons will make it. It's going to take extraordinary moral and spiritual courage to do what these saints do. But at the same time, God will have to carefully calibrate their experience to give them that opportunity to demonstrate that kind of loyalty. Solzhenitsyn made a crucial point. He said every person has a breaking point. When a prisoner didn't comply with their interrogators, it was really a sign that those captors hadn't successfully pushed him to that breaking point. He said this about one defiant captive. For a reader who is not in the know, this is a model of heroism. For a reader with a bitter gulag past... It's a model of inefficient interrogation. This is an unpleasant reality. Given harsh enough conditions, anyone can be broken. And that means God has to protect us. And he has to protect those in the tribulation from those conditions that would break them. But he promises in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13... God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. The Laodiceans will die in that captivity. Sadly, far too many of them will die, not for God, but trying to save their lives by submitting to their captors and other criminal activity in captivity. But a great many will repent and be martyred for God. They'll prove themselves worthy of becoming the bride of the Lamb who was slain. Isaiah 54 verses 4 and 5 have a thrilling message to the Laodiceans who will repent. By turning to God and giving up their physical lives, they will be resurrected not only into his family, but as part of the bride of Christ. Fear not, these verses say, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. Verses 7 and 8 say, For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. 
God did hide his face, but it was only for a moment, and it was for a magnificent purpose. Think about all that God will accomplish through the correction of this merciful captivity. Solzhenitsyn called his time in the gulags the most important years of my life, the years which put the finishing touches on my character. He wrote, Our initial first prison sky consisted of black swirling storm clouds and black pillars of volcanic eruptions. This was the heaven of Pompeii and the heaven of the Day of Judgment because it was not just anyone who had been arrested, but I, the center of this world. Our last prison sky was infinitely high, infinitely clear, even paler than sky blue. Revelation 7 describes two groups of people who will be protected from the horrors that immediately follow the two-and-a-half-year tribulation in the terrible year-long day of the Lord. The first group spoken of in verse 4, Revelation 7, is the Laodiceans. They die and are sealed. Their resurrection at Jesus Christ's return is certain. The second group, written about in verse 9, is a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. So this innumerable multitude includes Israelites, people from the English-speaking nations, and Gentiles who listened to those Laodiceans who warned them. And verse 14 shows these are people who repented in that merciful tribulation. Isaiah 11 shows that God will protect individuals in that great multitude during the day of the Lord which is when he'll pour out his fury upon their captor nations. And then just as he did with the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, God will deliver these modern slaves with a mighty hand. You can read about that in Isaiah 27, verses 12 and 13. God will clear a path for this massive multitude by pushing mountains of water out of their way and shepherding them to their promised land. This modern exodus will be so vast that people won't even remember the ancient exodus through the Red Sea. The horrors of captivity will have finally softened these people's hearts so they'll listen to God. That's all he ever wanted, for their hearts to be turned to him so he could save them from sin and death and lead them in the way that produces eternal life. In Jeremiah 16, it says, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their souls shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come again from the land of the enemy, and there is hope in your end, says the Lord, that your children shall come again to their own border. 
Imagine seeing this take place. Imagine people you know, your friends, neighbors, co-workers, family, having been taken captive, seeing them broken and emaciated, and yet with softened hearts, willing to submit to their great creator. Imagine God's emotion. He says in that same chapter, Jeremiah 16, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Eternal. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, says the Eternal. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a wonderful picture. This is what God is preparing for, even today. The coronavirus chaos is merciful tribulation. It's aimed at bringing people to repentance. And if they don't repent now, God will increase the intensity of the tribulation. It will also increase the intensity of his mercy. How merciful is God, always seeking to turn hearts of the children to their father. It's all the love of a father trying to reach his sons. Reflecting on his captivity, Solzhenitsyn came to have this astounding attitude. Bless you, prison. And then he added, bitingly, and from beyond the grave come replies. It's very well for you to say that when you came out of it alive. Thankfully, though, scripture reveals that the billions who never knew God and will not escape that merciful tribulation alive will be resurrected. They'll be given another opportunity to repent. We have a sliver of time, a sliver of time left before the tribulation that Jesus Christ prophesied breaks out upon the world. Repent now while the truth is abundantly available to you. Repent now and claim God's promise to protect his faithful from the suffering to come. If you've turned away from God, turn back. If you've never committed to God, commit. Join the work of God that is laboring urgently to use the few remaining moments we have to blast God's message as loudly as possible to the largest audience possible.
I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Jesus Christ in Revelation 3. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.